this is a draft that's fairly unpredictable, more so than other years. It's, it's not like some drafts where I would say to you right now, I know who we're going to draft. I just, I don't know that yet. I kind of subscribe to the notion of if you're happy, stay happy. And I like it here. And uh, I feel a part of this culture. My wife tells me all the time, you know, you're too intense. And my children, even are like, Dad, you know, you look like a freak at times. You know? <laughs> Welcome into the lounge for a very special episode of the lounge. They're all A's. This one's an A+. <laughs> it is an A+. Today we convinced our assistant general manager, Eric DaCosta, to stop by the lounge. And we want to pick his brain a little bit about which direction the Ravens are leaning in this draft. If he's going to share that with us. We also want to ask are. him uh, about his background. Because Eric's got a, just an interesting story of somebody that uh, really rose up the ranks. And from the time he was five, six years old, he knew that he wanted to work in football. And he basically spent his life working to get to this point, And he's climbed all the way to the top of the profession. Yeah, so really interesting stuff. So we'll welcome in Eric DaCosta. So Eric, I know... Uh, Recently, you guys just had all your big draft meetings. All the scouts were here in the building, and you guys kind of duked it out in the draft room in terms of setting the board. So where are we right now in the process? Is the board set? What's the story right now? Well, we met last week. It was the first time for the coaches to actually give their opinions on these guys. And we came out of it with about 165 ranked players that we think are draftable players for the Ravens at some point. Now, typically, our you know draft picks will come from our top 120 or so, so... But we've got an additional 45 players that we think are draftable just in case. Uh, we do have some meetings on Monday and Tuesday of next week where we have some you know, clumps of players that are very close together that we've asked people to do more work on. Um, we've also assigned some players that we think might be a possibility for us in the first round. And we do that. Uh, we give the scouts a chance to look at all the guys that we would be considering so that they have a frame of reference. So we assign all the players to all the scouts. Now, most of the scouts have done some of those players, but not all the scouts have done all the players. So they're doing those guys right now, and I'll have a chance to comment on those players next week. So when is the, the bow kind of tied on the whole package, and, that, and thus you're able to start pranking Pat Moriarty again? <laughs> That'll be, uh, you know, well, it's already started, but I think um, as of, you know, probably Tuesday night next week, okay. the board will be fairly set. Now I'll spend most of the day on Wednesday and Thursday really tweaking and refining, spending a lot of time with Ozzy. Uh, trying to make the board a Ravens board. So we do it, we, we really make the board, we try to do the board based on the ability of the players, the talent level of the players, and we look, we take into account things like football character and durability. But at the end of the process, we then take that and really refine it to make sure that it's a Ravens board. I mean, we're not going to, even if we think, for instance, that like, you know, one of these quarterbacks is the best player in the draft and he's there at 16, there's a really good chance we're not going to draft the quarterback because we've got Joe Flacco. Right. So um, we're not going to draft, you know, a left tackle that we think is is comparable to Ronnie Stanley because we've got Ronnie Stanley. Now, if the guy can play right tackle, maybe we will. Right. But you've got to look at your team. You've got to assess your strengths and weaknesses. And you've got to make Ravens-type decisions. So the, the board does kind of maneuver based on need a little bit. Well, you have to take it into account. Right. You can't just strictly draft. We always say, you know, 
best available player, but it's always best available player based on the other players that are around them and how those players would fit in with right. what you're trying to do. Right. So before we really get into the, the draft talk, the 2017 draft talk, I want to talk about you a little bit. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids grow up saying, I want to be a GM someday. And you did the same. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got to this position? Yeah, well, um, I love football. Obviously, you know, when I was four or five years old, I, I just, I, I loved my favorite sport. And I became a Cowboys fan primarily because they were really good in the 70s. I was born in 71. And uh, when they played the Broncos in the Super Bowl, um, I was young. And half the bus stop were Broncos, pulling for the Broncos. And, and I just decided to pull for the Cowboys. <laughs> and as a young child, I think the Super Bowl, it, it's 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 kind of like you you just that's where you kind of form allegiances. I mean that's why I think Russell Wilson's so popular around the country because all these young kids saw Seattle in the Super Bowl the last you know couple times they were there, and they just gravitate towards him, right. and so uh, that became me. And what I was always intrigued by the Cowboys is they always had this reputation for being very cutting edge in terms of scouting and building the roster. They had a GM. Um, you know, Tech Schramm, mm-hmm. who was widely regarded as being very innovative, and they had their director of player personnel, um, Gil Brandt, and they were the first team to really use computers. They were scouting nationally. They had a system that they created, a grading system that they created, and they were drafting players, and they were getting really good value in rounds where other teams weren't, and they found all these sleeper players that ended up being borderline Hall of Fame players in some respects are just great players from small schools, predominantly black colleges, all these areas of scouting where teams really weren't using. Right. So that was my team, and I became really fascinated with the draft, um, building teams, building rosters. I was also a baseball guy. I just loved the idea of building teams and looking at players and where were they from and memorizing statistics. And so for me, you know, the draft was one of the highlights of the year, and I would have all my books, and I would go through it all, and I would look at players, and I would do all the rankings, and I would have all these composite rankings, and I would build my own draft board, and my father and I would sit there, and we would watch the draft from, you know, this is back in the old days before the draft was really a big deal, right. but, but I would do it every single year. It was like my favorite weekend, <laughs> and that continued, and so when, you know, uh, Jerry Jones bought the team, you know, I was, as a Cowboys fan, conflicted. But he brought in Jimmy Johnson, and Jimmy Johnson was an absolute master of the draft. And he approached it differently, and his wheeling and dealing and his ability to find talent and his ability as a college guy, he knew college talent. He understood the trade chart. He created his own trade chart, the Jimmy Johnson chart. Um, he that's made all these different today, trades right? that still used today. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, the different variations of it. Chart. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it was like, wow, Jimmy Johnson, you know, and the way that he was able to move up and down the board and find all these players and all the different things he did. I studied him and studied that. And, um, you know, it was just for me to see how he could accumulate all these picks and do all that kind of stuff. And I was in college, and I would still, even in college, drive home uh, for the draft. You know, I went to school up in Maine, but I would drive to, uh, you know, southeastern Massachusetts to spend the weekend watching the draft with my dad. And so my whole goal was really, you know, ideally to work in football. I played football in college. Um, I went to more of an academic school, but I still, football for me was probably, you know, the center of my universe. And so um, I knew I had to gain some experience. So I started out as a coach, 
um, to build my football background. I had the playing experience. You know, I was a captain in high school. I was a captain in college. And then I decided I was going to coach. So I went to another good academic school, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. I worked there as a coach. I coached wideouts my first year, linebackers my second year. My third year, finishing up my master's, I uh, coached the defensive line. Um, between my second and third years, I uh, was actually out and met a guy who had done an internship in scouting with the Redskins. So that was like a light bulb that went off in my brain. And I sent letters to all the presidents, GMs, and head coaches around the league. And I got a couple teams that were interested to hire me in, I think, San Diego, uh, Detroit, and Washington. Being on the East Coast, it made the most sense for me to go down to Washington. So I spent seven weeks in uh, 94 with the Redskins and scouting. Charlie Cassidy was the GM. Uh, Scott Cohen was there at the time. And, uh, you know, uh, on that staff was Cam Cameron. Uh, um, North Turner was the head coach. Um, Russ Grimm was there. Uh, Ray Horton was there. I mean, it was a really – Jim Hannafin was a legendary offensive line coach was there. It was a really good staff. And so I spent seven weeks there in scouting. And uh, I kind of got the sense when I was there that they thought I was doing a good job. They gave me the chance to do some additional projects that the other interns really weren't doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt good about it. So when I was done, I met with Charlie, I met with Scott, and they were like saying to me, well, we're going to help you. We want to help you, you know, get a job in the league. So uh, in 95, uh, um, I had the chance to interview here. They recommended me for a job in Baltimore. The Ravens had just moved here. And so I came in in, uh, in 96, and I think I interviewed maybe in like either April, um, early April before the draft, I interviewed, and then uh, they offered me, I didn't hear back for a while. It took a while to hear back. <laughs> they had to move, who yeah, did you interview with? Yeah, I interviewed with Ozzy and okay. Phil Savage and Scott Pioli. Okay. And um, you know, so I thought I did a good out. job, yeah, but it took like maybe like six to eight weeks oh, wow. before they really circled back with me. And I think they had offered the job to somebody else. He turned it down, which was lucky for me. Um, and then, and then I got the job, and, and then the rest was history. Wow! And the Redskins, poor Redskins, for not keeping you around there. What's yeah, Charlie yeah, Cassidy? We got to call yeah, him up and yeah. kind of bust his balls a little bit. I think it worked out well for us. <laughs> Eric, I think it's really cool because you know you you talk about that background, and then when you get into scouting, everyone obviously wants to be a GM and you've have had opportunities to go and other mm-hmm. teams, it seems like every single year they call and they want to interview you and you've had opportunities, but you've turned them down because you want to stay here. You know, I just think that's that's rare. Everyone wants to climb the ladder and then a lot of people, the first opportunity they have to, to jump, they jump, but you yeah, haven't, yeah. why not? Um, you know, I think it's a complicated question, but I think in the end, you know, uh, I, I kind of subscribe to the, the notion of if you're happy, stay happy. And mm-hmm. I like it here. And uh, I feel a part of this culture. I feel like, you know, I started here on the ground floor back in 96 in, uh, when we were just starting out and our brand was really nothing. And, you know, we had a bad team and, and we were a very small organization. And, you know, I take pride in that. I take pride in seeing the growth of the organization, whether it's from, you know, a scouting standpoint or, you know, a success standpoint, but from a brand standpoint. You know, a media standpoint, from a franchise value standpoint, you know, from a stadium standpoint, from a facility standpoint, just the tremendous growth that we've had as an organization means a lot to me. And then I think the second part of that is, um, you know, my my 
my faith in Steve as an owner and my relationship with Ozzy are paramount. You know, I think a lot of people jump and then they end up in different places and they don't have those types of relationships with people that they work with. Um, I've got tremendous faith and respect for Dick Cass. Um, I've got tremendous, you know, faith and respect for, you know, John, Pat Moriarty. These guys are my partners. And, and just having an owner like Steve uh, is just, it's incredible. And then the third piece would be, and the final piece would be my wife, my family, her family. She's from Baltimore. She went to school here. My kids are here. My daughter's been in the same school since she was two years old. And, and I love that. I love that I see my, her friends and my son's friends and where they go to school. And they have this continuity in their lives. And I think that's a big part, too. I just want to kind of summarize people because we've worked together for a long time, the three of us, but I don't think that the fan on the outside really knows your personality. So I wrote this down to kind of describe your personality. I'm going to read it to you. And this is always a tough task to do, to summarize somebody's personality in paragraph. All right. So here we go. You let me know what you think. All right. You have one of the most intense auras about you in the building. Like, there are times when I feel you are just so focused on a thought that nothing could shake you of it, like when we walk by each other. In a building full of ultra-competitive people, you are at the top with anyone in this whole place. For example, you turned O.J. Berganza's charity 5K into an unofficial race with the scouts, <laughs> if my sources are correct on that. At the same time, you're the biggest prankster in the entire building, and you've somehow figured out a way to hack into Pat Moriarty's email, phone, and I'm sure his office. <laughs> yeah. Are those all correct? I think, yeah, that, that you know, uh, I am extremely competitive, and so I think what happens is, um, and, I, and, I, and I love that quality about myself, but what happens is it, 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 it wears me down. Mm. You know, like it's a, I want to win, I want to do the best, I've always been that way. But so then for me, like, I've got to have like this outlet. Mm -hmm. And for me, the outlet is, you know, if I'm at home, it's, it's my kids and having fun and being goofy and all that. But if it's here, it's probably, you know, playing tricks on people and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, creating these, these intricate traps and different things that I can do to people. And, <laughs> you know, it's because it's like I'm not obviously just going to start hugging people and everything else. But it's like how do I sort of relate to people that because a lot of times I am extremely focused and I do think that I, you know, my wife tells me all the time, you know, you're too intense and my children even though, like, Dad, you know, you look like a freak at times. You know? <laughs> I think that I, I do have this other side of me. I can't unwind. I like to just relax, but when it's this time of year, during the season, I just don't feel like I can. So for me, like, the pranks, I love pranking people. I love the intricacy of creating something really kind of cool. That's just like people are like, how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's a challenge for me, um, and I work really hard at it, but it's really because it's really because uh i need an outlet like i don't it, it, it in like may after the draft i don't really torment anybody i don't play <laughs> tricks most of my pranks come before the draft or come during the season where i feel this incredible like tension inside myself and so for me to do a prank on somebody is kind of fun and it makes it's me relax cathartic. yeah that's yeah. funny i never really thought about that yeah. way. so what's it, we won't tell you to reveal what you're working on this year, but what's one prank in past years, maybe leading up to the draft, that you're you're particularly proud of? You have a long list. Yeah, there there's been 
there's been a lot of pranks <laughs> that I've done. Um, man, there's been so many. I think um, I think one of the one of the funniest pranks that that I can remember is when I was wearing a, a pair of jeans one day, and I noticed that Pat had the exact same pair of jeans in his locker. So obviously he's a bigger guy than me, yeah. and, and you know he's taller than me. He's, his waist. I shouldn't say this, but waist is a little bigger than mine. <laughs> so anyways, I had just finished working out, and I knew that he was coming into the locker room in like 15 minutes. So I took my jeans, and I put his belt on him, and I hung him in his locker, and then I took his jeans and just hit him in the back. And I got in the shower, I came out, I changed, and then I waited for him <laughs> to come in with George Kokinas. And so they're talking, they get out of the shower, and... All of a sudden, like, I hear Pat say to George, and I can't see him, but I'm around the other side. You guys know how the dynamic <laughs> yeah, yeah. is in there. So I hear Pat go, have I gained that much weight? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, gosh, I feel bloated. <laughs> something's, something's not right. And, of course, George doesn't know right, either. Right. But he looks at Pat and he goes, Pat, those jeans do not look good on you. <laughs> and he goes, God, they're so binding. He goes, I just worked out. I shouldn't feel it. So I've got to eat less because I feel really bloated. And then he goes, wait a minute. I don't think these are my jeans, but these are my jeans. But I don't think these are my jeans. There's no way these are my jeans. He goes, they're so constricting and tight. <laughs> and so when I, I, then I just started bursting out. And when I came back, the jeans were like, first of all, they were like four inches shorter than they probably should be. <laughs> And he couldn't even, he's trying to cinch them up and he can't even get them buttoned up. And they're all binding in his crotch and in his thighs and he's trying to force them up. And he looks at me and he goes, you son of a <laughs> Where are my jeans? And I just started laughing. He started the skinny jean trend. He that did. Was the he did. He did. Uh, you know, I talked about you sticking around. I'm just amazed that Pat has lasted here as long as he yeah, has with you tormenting yeah, him like yeah. that on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, I will say this, uh, and people that know me, kind of know this to be true like if I if I make you a target it's gonna be somebody that I really care about or that it's like I, a tough love thing yeah it's it's gonna be somebody that I'm really comfortable with right you know um, so I, I just you know yeah it's gonna be if I have no use for you or I don't know you real well or whatever it is I'm probably not gonna do it so the fact that I think Pat's one of my main you know, recipients of my pranks. I mean, I think that actually speaks well for them, that I think highly of them. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, uh, Valerie's also another one who's put up with a lot of <laughs> oh, things I didn't know that. over the years. Uh, <laughs> Dick Cass has been a recipient several <laughs> times. So, um, you know, there's been some fun things. We all love that. the emails. There'll be like yeah. a, a email to everybody in the whole department, like three weeks too late. Like, yeah. Merry, Merry Christmas from Pat Moriarty coming on New Year's Day or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, everybody in the organization looks at it and they say, yep, looks like Eric got into Pat's email again. <laughs> we, we've, we've done, this year we did the turkeys where we sent oh, yeah. somebody over to uh, Giant thinking that they were supposed to be picking up 15 turkeys on Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving, and they have no idea at Giant what this kid's talking about. And, and this guy's adamant that he's there to get John Harbaugh's turkey. And they have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, we've done that the last couple of years. And then we have an intern every year that works for us. We bring in a new intern every year and we give him a list of uh, beauty products, obscure beauty products that he thinks Dick Cass wants. And so he goes all 
over the place trying to find Burt's Bees, hand lotion and foot scrubbing <laughs> lotion and Epsom salts and various things and delivers them to Dick every year. It's a different kid every year. Right, we right. just do it every year. And Dick gets this package on his desk of obscure health products. <laughs> and he's just like, man, what am I going to do? That's awesome. That's so awesome. I'd love to talk pranks all day long. We, you know, we could do a full prank <laughs> podcast. But the draft is coming up, so we want to talk a little bit about that, ask yeah. you some questions about that. So in terms of, you know, we talked about you know, the process of setting the board. How much attention are you paying to mock drafts? that are out there right now. Ryan and I are getting ready to release our seven-round mock next Which week. Which is going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, I, we're lucky if we maybe hit one. No, no, no. You're lucky if you hit one. I hit Willie Henry and Judon last year. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, how much attention are you paying to those and, and keeping an eye on those kinds of things? I look at that stuff. Um, I'm always trying to figure out what league value would be yeah. and how other people perceive players. So, for me, uh, knowing that those guys that are doing the mock drafts talk to people in the league, and sometimes have good sources. Uh, I look at them, and uh, it helps me. It helps me figure out you know the range where people think these guys are going to get picked. So I think there's value there. I mean, I think you're not going to certainly draft based on mock drafts. Right. But it's definitely as you're piecing together the draft and you're piecing together your strategy, and you're trying to figure out where you have to take a guy. Um, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you said earlier, a month ago or so, that you feel like there are less surprises in the draft. Just mm-hmm. everybody seems to be drafting off the same board. Yeah. Is it, it kind of like taking some of the fun out of it for you? Well, it's challenging in a different way. Mm. You know, um, You know, we're always trying to figure out things that we can exploit right. that other teams maybe aren't doing or trying to find opportunity to create value. The draft is really all about finding value. So I look at the draft almost like a value investor. Um, we have to ascertain what the value of any given player is, and then when the value of that player becomes such that you should take him based on where he is and based on what you think his value is, you pounce. So what we do is, um, last a few years ago, we just we felt like all the big school players were getting scrutinized so much. So much was getting written about Alabama players and USC players and players at you know, Texas and Oklahoma and Clemson, that we felt like there was an opportunity for us to draft more small school players. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've had some success doing that. We've taken some small school guys and, and a lot of these guys, not all of them, but, but, but I think we've done a really good job, you know, drafting the Flaccos and the Usechecks and the Brandon Williams and the Darius Webbs and all those kind of guys, mm-hmm. the, the Judons and things like that, um, because we just feel like teams in some instances, penalize small school players. They, they, they actually discount small school players because they play at a low, low level of competition. And how do you measure that lower level versus big school players? Right. Well, I think we've done a good job of doing that to counteract the fact that these other players, these big school players, get so much written about them. Right. Online, in print, whatever it is, there's so much media attention on TV about these guys that everybody's kind of using the same script. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. So you're kind of, you know, everyone always asks us, who are the Ravens going to draft? Who are the Ravens going to draft? And, and I guess the truth is, you truly don't know who you're going to draft because it depends who obviously goes before you. But you also talk every year about how you can kind of nail it down to a couple of different guys. How many would you say you're down to right now in terms of guys who you think we truly could draft in the first round? Well, there's probably five guys 
Uh, I think there's a lot of volatility right now. I'll have a better sense like Tuesday night of next week. Okay. Our list may change a little bit. We've still got some tough decisions to make. Um, but I think this is a draft that's fairly unpredictable, um, more so than other years. So it's it's not like some drafts where I would say to you right now, I know who we're going to draft. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know that yet. I don't even know in some cases... Uh, I don't know who the first quarterback to be drafted will be. I don't know who the first running back to be drafted. I don't know when the first wideout is going to be drafted. I don't know when the first offensive lineman is going to be drafted. So it's not like last year, for instance, where I could say to you that the first seven picks would be in some order, you know, in some order would be, you know, Goff, Wentz, Stanley, Tunsil, Bosa, mm-hmm. Buckner, and Elliott. Right. And Ramsey. I mean, everybody knew those were the players. Right. It just depended on the order of those players. Right. This year, if you try to do that, it's much, much more difficult to do that. So um, this draft has taken on a very unpredictable quality, and so I think it just depends. I'll have a better sense for the players that we might be looking at next week, at least down to probably three or four but it's going to be tougher for me to make a prediction as to who we're going to get in the first round this year right. just before the draft because it's, it's not the typical type of draft. But you still will make that prediction. Everybody puts in their pick who, before, before it gets uh, there or before the first round starts. I used to do that. I, we haven't done it for the last couple of years. I mean, I can kind of figure it out mm-hmm. who I think it'll be, right. and I know who it's going to be. Um, and I'll tell people this is what we're looking at, <laughs> right. and, and usually I'm, I'm correct. But I think that this year is just, it's going to be a little more challenging yeah. for us. Can we talk a little bit about the wide receivers, just because fans sure. are talking a lot about this. And yeah. one guy that's come up a lot is Corey Davis uh, from Western Michigan. And, you know, a lot of the recent buzz is that pe- people don't know where he's going to go. He's very unpredictable because mm-hmm. he didn't run the 40 mm-hmm. because of the ankle injury. Is that something that you feel like we're a team that, that really relies on the tape? Or how much does that affect his draft stock in your mind? Well, you look at everything. Right. You know, um, there have been some instances over the years where we've drafted guys that haven't, worked, haven't run 40s. We've drafted guys that have been injured, coming off injuries. We've, uh, you know, we've drafted guys that have had a lot of different issues. And so you look at everything and you discuss everything um, and you weigh that player versus everybody else. And you look at his ability, what you think his ability is. You talk to coaches. You talk to different people about that guy. Um, you visit with him. Uh, you watch his tape. And you just you just make a decision. It's a, it's a challenge at times when you don't have in, all the information or when a guy has a current injury. There are a lot of guys in this draft that have yeah. had surgery since the season ended. And that makes it really tough, you know. Uh, so it's a challenge. Um, I think he's a really good player. Uh, it just depends on who's there when we pick. One thing, you know, he talked with you about it at the Senior Bowl. I talked with you about it at the Combine. You know, go back a couple of months, we were all asking about corners. You know, the likelihood of drafting a cornerback in the first or second or maybe both rounds. It seems like that maybe has changed a little bit by the addition of Brandon Carr, bringing back Ladarius Webb, getting Tony Jefferson. So, like, the secondary mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be quite as big of a need as it was, like, three months ago. Do you feel like the uh, the hope would still be to find one of those corners early, or has that kind of changed based on what the moves have been over the past couple of months? 
Well, I've always looked at corners as kind of like pitchers in baseball. They're very sort of fragile. They get hurt a lot. Yeah. They're like Ferraris and race cars and different <laughs> things. And they break down. And it's really important. I mean, there's nothing more important in baseball than probably pitching. And there's nothing it probably other than quarterback more important in football than having really good corners who can cover guys. So I think our mindset is that if there's a really good corner that we can't pass up, we're going to take them because it's just so hard. When you lose games in the NFL, it's usually because, one, your quarterback didn't play well, or two, you couldn't stop the other team. So if you can't cover, consistently cover, get the ball out, make plays in the football, it's going to be really hard to win games. So I think we have added some guys. We like where our secondary is right now, but if we think that there's an elite corner available when we pick, it'll be very hard for us not to take them. Mm-hmm. Offensive linemen, obviously, that's another area of need uh, now at center and right tackle. You know, took Ronnie Stanley at pick number six last year. I think people are looking at it and saying, would they really take a tackle or an offensive lineman in the first round in back-to-back years? Yeah. In your mind, it, does Ronnie not have anything to do with it? I think it's best player. So who's there right. and how does it work? And has there been a history of teams taking offensive linemen back-to-back in the draft two years? Yeah, Dallas did Dallas it. Dallas did, yeah. So with, with pretty good success. So it's yeah. not unprecedented. I mean, if you look at Dallas back with Jimmy Johnson, again, they drafted and built a really strong offensive line uh, with like guys like you know Searcy and, and, uh, and Allen. And, I mean, guys, that whole, you know, that whole offensive line was great. Right. You know, uh, they had Nate and they had all these other guys and it was a really, really good offensive line and they built that and it worked out for them. And so I think that's having a strong offensive line is something that we want. We want to be a physical team. When we won the Super Bowl in 12, uh, I think the biggest thing that happened was we tweaked the offensive line and they became really good in a very quick span of time. And Joe didn't get hit and right. Joe was able to stand in the pocket and throw the ball like he can. And I think a big part of that was the offensive line. So. You know, I think we want to be strong, we want to be physical, we want to protect, we want to control the game on offense, we want to control the, the line, we want to be a physical team that can win the game in the fourth quarter, that can move the ball on the ground and all that. And the offensive line is a big part of that. So if we can do that, we will. So Ryan and I disagree on this. He thinks that if there's a trade in the first round, it's more likely to move back. I say if there's a trade in the first round, it's more likely to move up. So which one? Of, for the Ravens? For us, yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah. So which one of us is correct? <laughs> I think both. <laughs> you know, we, we always look again, we look at yeah. trades as a value proposition. So what can we get to move back and who's going to be there? If we have to move up, we want to move up. Who are we going to get? What's his grade? And what do we have to give up to get him? And what does that mean? What does that pick that you give up mean to you? What do you value that pick at? Uh, what kind of players can you take with that pick? And so that factors in. It's not just you know moving up to get the player. It's what does that player value versus who you're going to get by moving back or moving up, but also what pick that you're giving up or getting. How do you, you know, every pick has a range, you know, subscribe to it. So, like, for instance, if you've got the, say, 40th pick in the draft, that 40th pick really translates probably to the 28th player on your board because there's an element of slippage. So teams will take players that you don't like, which point just pushes good players down to you that you like. So it's not really the 40th pick. It's the, the player that you'll get with that pick. So hypothetically, say you've got the 20th pick in the first round. History tells us you're probably going to get the 12th player on your board. 
So how does that 12th player factor in? So if you're trading from, say, 16 to 12 and you've got to give up pick 78, it's not really pick 78. It's the player that you will get with pick 78 like in your sequence. Whatever, yeah. Right. And how does that player matter versus, you know, is it better to have that player and, say, 16, the player you're going to get 16, or the player that you're going to get 12 and only that player? Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Cool. Well, Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And... Uh, did you we'll, want? We'll be looking out for pranks. Yeah, we'll yeah, be looking we'll, out for we'll pranks. We'll be keeping our eye out and there's anything. <laughs> well, I think what's really cool now is like since this building has undergone some changes. It's much different. It's much different because of the structure. And so it puts people that would normally be hidden down in their little caves, it puts them closer to me. I don't like that. Unfortunately, that includes us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it opens up some new dimensions for me to, uh, to to take advantage of the situation and, and, and create some new opportunity. I know, but keep my head on a swivel the past couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Hey. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Appreciate guys. It. So as Eric leaves, just really good stuff. I mean, a lot to digest there. What do you think? Wide receiver, offensive lineman, well, pass rusher corner you know, in that first round? You know, Eric was really open and shared a lot about his life and his path and uh, I just thought he gave some great insight in terms of like thinking through trades like that I felt like I was like learning from a professor yeah, right there to some degree but he's also a master at not <laughs> divulging anything when it comes to who we're going to pick you know like I don't think he shared really he didn't give me any sort of indication yeah, after about, he talks about the cornerbacks and the Ferraris I'm like alright yeah you're right we, we gotta take a cornerback yeah. in the first round then he talks about the offensive lineman and building a great line like the Cowboys I'm like you're right man we need a strong line <laughs> right. it's like every single good thing we didn't we didn't have him talk about the pass rushers early but I would have been like alright yeah. let's get after the quarterback I know I know so I, I mean this really is I mean it's a good and a bad thing but there's a number of different positions where the Ravens could use a premier player you know right. those positions you're just naming yep. and so if one of those guys is there like it kind of you're not pigeonholed where you say all right you, you need a corner mm-hmm. in the first round you need that guy if, if it's a corner great if it's a receiver great yeah if it's, a, if it's an offensive lineman i know fans aren't necessarily going to like that from a sexiness standpoint but i'm starting to come around joe I think flacco that, would like it joe flacco would probably like it um and so i think that they have some good options this year yeah for sure so thank you for listening and we also will be bringing in director of college scouting joe hortiz so we are back-to-back awesome interviews here. Slam dunks. So make sure you tune in for that. And as always, you can reach us at the lounge at ravens.nfl.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>